0: Today's guest is Rich Bartlett, one of the leading thinkers and tool developers in the domain of self-organizing work and living.
1: Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: Ah, it's great. Great to have you. You're a guy that I really enjoy following. Rich is one of the founders of EnSpiral, a work and live cooperative we'll be talking about more, and The Hum, an educational and consulting group that teaches others how to self-organize. He has a very interesting newsletter I subscribe to that's available at Rich decibels, decibels as in the sound units, .substack.com. Personally, I love his Medium posts, Richard D. Bartlett on Medium, and his tweet streams is one of my favorites at richdecibels. As usual, all the resources we mentioned will be available at our episode page for this episode on my podcast website, jimruttshow.com. Rich has also written a book that's not yet finished, Patterns for Decentralized Organizing. That's best found by just Googling the name Patterns for Decentralized Organizing, Richard D. Bartlett. And again, the link will be available on our website. So, Richard, lots that you do. Let's start with n How does it work? and What is it? First came to my attention back in the early Game B days, 1.0, 2013, when we investigated Lumio as a possible organizing tool. We kind of looked a little bit at Inspiral. we probably not as deeply as we should have. We ended up not picking Lumio. We ended up using Basecamp instead. But tell us about Inspiral. Where did it come from? What does it do? Where is it today?
1: I have to um, always give this disclaimer that Inspiral is a, a very complex system. And so everyone you ask will have a different story about what it is. But I can tell you my version of the truth. And you, you sort of have to sam- take many samples to get a full picture. But it's a couple hundred people originated in New Zealand and so a lot of those people live in New Zealand but now I don't know maybe a third or more of them live in other countries around the world and we are supporting each other to do more meaningful work whatever that means so we haven't defined what meaningful work is we say it's stuff that matters and that that implies that what matters to you if it matters to you it matters to us and we don't have to put a a very tight definition on what that is so it's kind of a community of friends who trust each other a lot and do a lot of experimentation with different ways of organizing and making small cooperatives and businesses just a huge variety of different little small businesses that all have overlapping brands and overlapping people and yeah, we do a ton of experimentation with like how do we how do we prototype the organization of the future where we're working together on on relationships of trust and equality and freedom and autonomy and those sorts of things and, and move away from the way of organizing, which is this top-down coercive hierarchical control system where people are, you know, like my, my experience before I worked at Inspiral, I, I always felt that, you know, like work is supposed to suck more or less. And that's why they pay you to go there. Uh, Whereas with Inspiral, we're trying to do a kind of work that's really life-giving, really fun, really meaningful really purposeful, and and to get paid decent money for doing it. So that's the grand experiment. And it, it basically came out of this guy, Joshua Vile. He's a, he's, a, he's a deep dude, another one that you might want to interview one day. And he just had this experience of trying to, he's an engineer and a programmer, so he's got quite an analytical brain. And he came to the conclusion one day that he had something like, I forget the numbers, I think he said he had 80,000 hours of he could expect roughly 80,000 hours of productive life in him. And he'd already used up some fraction of that doing his programming work. And then he did some, some sort of modeling of like, what's the most positive impact that I can have in the world with the remainder of those hours? And he, in the modeling, it became very obvious that a, one man working as hard as he likes on any prog- project is not going to get very far compared to mobilizing a community of people that are all working on stuff. And so he set his mind to... Yeah. How do we recruit a collective of people that are all working on systems change? And how do we do that in a way that's actually prototyping the new systems that we want to live in from the start?
0: Very cool. Could you give me an example of some of the businesses that have spun up under the Inspiral umbrella?
1: Sure. There's a real variety. So it tends to have a tech side. It's like we've got a lot of tech people in the community. You mentioned Lumio, so I'm one of the co-founders of Lumio and that, that's kind of interesting. It came out of the Occupy movement where we had this experience of self-organizing and collective decision making. And and I was part of the Occupy movement, and then I met the folks at Inspiral. And it was sort of from that overlap of those two communities that that Lumio emerged as a a tech platform that's run by a worker-owned cooperative that's trying to do business for good. So that's uh, you know, it's ongoing ongoing project and then there's the developer academy so that's a a programming school essentially it's like a boot camp for for teaching people how to be excellent programmers with a sort of trojan horse mission of actually teaching programmers about relational skills and emotional intelligence then there's quite a few of us because we've been doing all this experimentation with different ways of organizing there's an increasing number of what i would call insultingly management consultants like myself who (laughs) you know, have have views on how to design organizations in a new way. So Greater Than is a really nice one. They they do a lot of work, especially around collaborative funding and financing. Like how do you, if you've got a membership organization with thousands of people in it, how can they participate in setting the budget for that organization, for instance? So they do a lot of work around that. And there are a lot of, you know, little, little software shops. Usually it's um, three, four, five, six people working together as software consultants and just making a little... A little temporary brand so that they can work together and sometimes these brands coalesce to do bigger projects
0: very interesting together does that make a full-time living for 200 people or are some of these people still keeping their game a jobs
1: there's definitely a real mix after the call i can share with you an impact report that was done recently that that will actually have the numbers in it i don't know them off the top of my head but There's at least a third of us would be full time living in this new economy and then probably a third that are part time. And then probably the last third, more or less, are earning their living in in traditional jobs and traditional organizations, but they are getting something else from their connection to the community, whether that's inspiration or friendship or connections or opportunities or something like that.
0: That's actually good to my mind because it shows a ramp, right? People can engage at various levels. And we think about this a fair amount in our Game B world, that people do not jump up a cliff in general, a few maniacs do. I will. Probably you would. But most people... Don't right. They want to. They want to uh, minimize their risk by taking a small step at a time. So being associated in some sense, in which my living isn't on the line, is a lower risk way to start. And then doing part time work is an next natural evolution for some of the people. Then becoming full time, and actually living it, you know, is the third step. So I actually like the fact that you guys have fallen out that way. It seems to be congruent with human nature and the way that the majority of people, the vast majority of people, actually would prefer to proceed rather than suddenly going from A to B, how we
1: say? Hmm. If, if, for me, it's, it's, it's like a transvestment strategy. It's like, I've, so I come from this background, which is basically anarchist and anti-capitalist and this oppositional kind of activist identity. And I've, I think I've grown out of that somewhat. And now I'm in this place where I really... I love the strategy of transvestment. So taking money out of one system and putting it in another, you know, not being oppositionally anti-capitalist, but getting your hands on the capital and putting it to good use and mobilizing it on a different set of principles, you know, so that it's, that it's going to do something better in the world than just make money for venture capitalists.
0: Yeah, it's funny that's great because we have the exact same concept for our game b movement even though we're not as far along which is we call it parasitizing game a right and it's interesting you mentioned management consulting we currently are having a discussion about what are some of the game b ventures that we believe would allow us to actually outcompete hmm. game a entities and oddly we've come up with things like auto repair garages which are famously corrupt at least in the united states management consulting, which is high-priced, low-value in many cases, and even ad agencies that are, you know, sort of full of the worst kind of predatory sociopaths, and we think we can do a better job in all those things. Interesting that you guys found management consulting also. To what degree is there some kind of shared economics amongst these various working groups? Like, for instance, does Inspiral itself have a central account where it can provide some startup capital for these other working groups? And is there some, you know, payment back from the working groups or do the working groups just stand on their own bottom and do their own thing?
1: Hmm. Well, I guess the important principles here are, uh, we've done a ton of different experimentation. And so whenever someone asks, you know, is there startup capital available? Is there um, a collective fund? Have you tried exchanging equity? The answer is always yes, because we've just done so many experiments over the last decade. And the other, the other important principle is what we've learned is what matters most is, is the quality of the relationships that you're maintaining, the trust and the, and the openness of communication between all these people, regardless of what experimentation you're doing. So with those <laughs> provisos, the way it currently works, everyone in the collective is contributing at least a tiny little membership contribution, you know, so that could be $5 a month. Some people are doing a lot more than that, you know, they're, if they're in a position where they're Earning a lot of income and they they attribute some of that income to Inspiral. So so for instance, if you're doing management consulting work and you're you've got a really high day rate and you know that you get um you know that you're benefiting from the Inspiral brand, then you might be in a position when you're gonna share 10 or 15% of your income with the collective. And all of that money goes into a central fund. And then at the moment, I think roughly half of that income just covers some of our essential stuff. So we've got a few community managers, um, someone's writing a newsletter, we've got our technology, um, you know, there's some sort of basic administration to run a network of 200 people. And then on top of that, the rest is, is is discretionary spending. And so we essentially run a kind of internal crowdfunding where anyone can propose to spend the collective money. So usually, usually, once we have sort of Ten or twenty thousand dollars in the collective bank account, then we'll open up a round of, of proposals. So anyone in the in the network is able to say, "Yeah, I've got this new idea for a product, and I need five thousand dollars to to get started with that. Could you fund me?" Or it could be, "I want to go to a conference and talk about Inspiral." Or it gets really creative. You know, sometimes it's like we're having events, and I want to pay for childcare. Or wouldn't it be great if we had a fund available for people who need counselling? Or Conflict mediators and so on. So it's it's really. Uh, I mean, I've 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 got a fund called the Fairy Blog Mother, and I'm the Fairy Blog Mother, and I run around dispensing hundred dollar bills on people for writing blog posts on the Inspiral blog. You know, so it's like there's just a huge amount of creativity and what we do with that shared economy. So there's that layer, which is not a huge amount of money, given given you've got 200 people, most of whom are earning reasonable money. But then there's there's a there's a, a layer underneath that, which is more at the the small scale, we've got different language for it. We call them crews or pods, livelihood pods. They're basically small cooperatives where you'll have maybe um, five or six people who are consultants that could, they could go out into the market as independent freelancers and make a living that way. But they coalesce into these small groups where they get the solidarity of working in a team and, and the ability to uh, take on bigger jobs. And also we do income pooling in those small groups so that you take out the the peaks and troughs out of your income and you can just have a stable salary where if you've got good trust between four or five consultants who know each other well, it turns out you can can share all of your income. Either some of them are doing it in a full communist way where it's like all the money goes into one place and then everyone takes what they need out of it. And then other ones, they're a bit more towards more of the capitalist end of the spectrum. So they'll have some kind of allocation formula where it's, you know, it depends on how much? How many hours did you put in, and what's your hourly rate, and so on? And you, you have some kind of complicated algorithm for determining how much money to share with each other. But that's that to me is the is the more interesting part is the the kind of financial solidarity that happens at the really small scale.
0: Hmm, I like that very interesting. What I also like and would commend is the pluralism in how the smaller groups are organized. I see implicitly that some people, as you said. Full communism on one extreme, some kind of contractual sharing economy capitalism at the other, and probably lots of things in between. And at least my take is we don't yet know what really works in this what comes next world. And we got to do a bunch of experiments to find out. So it sounds like you guys are doing several experiments in parallel on you know things like financial sharing within your own organization.
1: And and what we do know that works, at least this is my strong opinion so far from the, from the experience of the last decade, is is this emphasis on small groups. So like there was an earlier phase of Inspiral where the main activity was basically a large freelancers collective with 100 plus people in it. They were all sharing the brand of Inspiral services. And there was essentially one or two people in the middle of that system who who were actually the business owners who actually understood the overall system. Whereas most people were were just playing their part as an individual and didn't really have a sense of the whole. And and it didn't work, you know? Like there were some real problems with that model where we had problems where, for instance, there's this dysfunctional setup with risk where one person out of that collective of 100 could tarnish your brand by having a bad interaction with a customer, right? So it's like we, we learned over time that instead of having this one enormous collective of people trying to do this sort of, peace, love, and sharing money thing, distributing it into many small pools where there's an independent brand for each one of those. There's an independent legal entity. People have to understand the ins and outs of running a business at that scale. And then there's a lot of collaboration that happens across those borders. People are coming and going between those borders all the time, but there's the right sort of cell boundaries there to keep the, the incentive square.
0: I like it. Sounds like you guys have learned some things from your experiments and are now converging towards a replicatable model. I'm actually going to skip ahead there because that sets me up for a later topic on my list of the several medium posts that I read and in this case reread to get ready for this podcast. One that hopped out to me as almost central to your thinking is titled Microsolidarity Number 2. And in that, you lay out a, and that's the one where you talk about self-dyad, the crew, et cetera. You talk about, and I think an extraordinarily practical way, and one that at least got my attention, an idea for how we organize at multiple layers. Do you want to go over that and talk about that a little bit, why that's
1: important? Hmm, sure. So the way that I think about it, and like I said at the start, you know, my my take on Inspiral is just one of many and, and other folks will have a different approach. And, and I don't want um, to be the end of the story, but I am charting out one particular ascent up the mountain, you know, and, and so that, that's just, um, just to own my subjectivity on that piece. But the thing that I've articulated there somehow is having resonance in a lot of different contexts. So it seems like it's, it's doing some good. The way that I look at it is it's, it's, it's all about how do we practice a kind of relationship that is built on different premises than the one that I was raised with. You know, the, on the on the top-down hierarchical command and control, isolated, distant, um, atomized, individualized, neoliberal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's like a way of being that I was raised in that um, me and a lot of other people don't want to be a part of. You, you would call it Game A, and we want to be in Game B, which requires a different way of relating to others, where we're no longer um, having one person in charge of, of of everyone, we're not trying to have these top down relationships. Uh, we're trying to work together in, with some degree of equality, whatever that looks like. We don't actually know in practice. We're trying to grow into this game B of way way of being in the world, and and to my way of thinking, that requires us to change how we relate to other individuals. So it's a it's a, it's a big learning process about how do we relate, and and this. The reason I emphasize this is because most of the people that I encounter that are interested in, you know, restarting civilization or something, they tend to come in from a perspective of most of the ones that I know come in from, a. oh, if we just had the right technology, you know, like if we, it would be a bit like Airbnb and a bit like Uber, but it would be owned by the drivers and, da, da, da. you know, they have this whole technological plan about how if we just had the right systems and structures and agreements, then then we'd have a new a new way of being. Whereas I think it goes lay layer underneath the technology into the culture into our psychology and so on so that's why the writing that i'm doing on this topic is a lot of it's quite touchy-feely you know it's about intimacy and vulnerability and connection and these sorts of things because that's just what i've seen is like a kind of required necessary prerequisite before you get to the really great stuff of yeah having all of these shared brands and shared money and and freedom and connection and so on so the layers that I articulated in the micro-solidarity proposal, it starts with the self. And, and I found it useful to even think about the self as a group. So there's a, a therapeutic modality called internal family systems, which I don't know well, I haven't studied well, but um, I, I feel like I kind of independently started articulating some of the ideas that are in that. And now I'm rapidly trying to catch up and learn because they've, they've got a lot more depth on it than I do. But they treat the individual as a group. And, and in their language, they call them parts. And so the idea is like you know i have my confident part and my anxious part and my silly part and my happy part and you know all these different all these different characters that that live and that have the shared custody of me and there's always work that i can do to bring those parts into greater harmony so for instance you know for me one of the ways this has showed up to me really obviously in the last couple of weeks being here we are in the middle of a pandemic and i'm a migrant in a country where i don't know the place and i don't know the language I, some of my parts are very fearful, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and, and, and um, I'm frightened about how things are going to go wrong. And for the first couple of weeks of that experience, I was really trying to disown that part of myself, just ignore it, just clamp down on it. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. And it didn't work. You know, it really didn't work. It put me in a state of cognitive dissonance until I could just treat that part of myself as a, a member of the family, as a member of the group, you know, of a, of, of a, Hey, one part of me is fearful. What does he need? You know, if I can just treat him with some tenderness and respect, maybe it'll be okay. And so that's, that's a practice, which is about, I guess, deepening my own maturity and my own competence and my own ability to deal with, you know, you'd say in, in, in the game, game B space, you talk about sovereignty a lot. I think that's a lot of what that's about is like not being, knowing what are the parts myself that get, they get triggered or they get pulled into fantasizing ideas about how we're going to transform the world, or they get freaked out about the wrong political idea or there's lots of different reasons that I lose my sovereignty. And, and so I have a lot of focus on this thing about developing the relationship in the parts of yourselves. That's one piece. And then the second step up the ladder from there, I call the dyad. And that's just, that's just about two people, two selves coming into contact with each other. And for argument's sake, I think it's useful to, to borrow from Ria Eisler's work on what she calls the partnership domination lens. And she's brilliant. Maybe it would be useful to read her book, Nurturing Our Humanity, or another one, um, The Chalice and the Blade. And and her frame is looking at world history, but then also looking at family dynamics and societies and so on, and evaluating them on this this, uh, polarity that she's named, the partnership domination lens. So are we relating to each other more as partners where we are two equally important but different people? Or are we relating to each other in a spirit of domination where one person is, is trying to exert their will over the other one, is trying to exert their subjectivity over the other? And I think that's a really useful heuristic, a really useful lens for, for looking at all kinds of relationships. And, and, and the way that I understand what we've been doing with Inspiral is we're trying to learn how can we get a, a few hundred people together and have them all relate to each other in a spirit of partnership. And, and the reason that I, I, I call out this dyad is because that's a great place to practice. You know you know what it's like to be in a relationship with one person and have a conversation with them where it feels like they're your equal. You know, not the same, they're different, but that you're relating to each other horizontally, that there's not... Um, you're not trying to dominate me or or tell me what's the right way to think. And I'm not trying to do that to you too. And I'm just, I'm, I'm witnessing you. I'm listening to you and observing. And we're in this exchange. People know what that feels like. And so that's part of the practice is just learn how to notice when you are coming out of partnership into a domination posture and see, see what you can do to, to come back into partnership. And I should also say, you know, domination is, is the, it's only half the story because the other half is submission, right? It's domination and submission. That's like a two-player game. And it doesn't matter which side of the equation you're on. There's still maneuvers that you can take to get you closer to the partnership.
0: Indeed. Sounds actually like you're describing a good marriage. Of course, it's a dyadic relationship. And, you know, I've been fortunate to have been married 39 years to a wonderful person. And I think we've always managed to see each other as complete peers, though different. And I think that's the secret to, to making a dyad work. And I was frankly fortunate and unlikely to have had good parental model. My working class parents, my dad dropped out of high school when he was After ninth grade, my mother left home when she was 14. I grew up in a neighborhood where half the adults had dropped out of high school. So this was not what you'd call socially advanced. But nonetheless, my parents had a marriage of a complete peerdom, which was very interesting. I never saw them seriously argue. I never saw them take a, a, a serious decision other than by consensus. And so I think that was you know, and their marriage lasted till the death of my father, 54 years, I think it was something like that. So yeah, your dyad sounds to me like very similar to healthy long-term
1: marriage. Yeah. It's also, um, you know, like a a best friend or a mentor or a coach, or there's a lot of different, um, places that these relationships come up. So then the, the step up from there, I call the crew. And, um, I chose that word because it's a bit like the crew of a sailing ship where again, you're all doing different, you know, when you're sailing a boat, you all have different roles and you play to those strengths and you achieve something as a whole that you couldn't on your own. And I I really focus on the smaller scale. I've said it's up to eight people, but I kind of regret that. I think it maybe even should be capped at six people. I usually say it's the, the size of a, um, the, the number of people you can get around a dinner table and have one conversation with. And And that scale is really important because you know, um, what's her name? Margaret Mead has got this very often overused quote about never, never doubt the power of a small group to change the world. Indeed, it's the it's, it's the only thing that ever has. We hear that quote quite frequently, but I, I I wonder if people really take that to heart that the only thing that's going to change the world is a small group of committed citizens. And therefore, to me, our job is to learn how to be one of those small groups of committed citizens. Like that should be, for anyone that wants to do some kind of change in the world, your first principle should be, okay, where's the small group that I'm going to work with? And that means it's not just about me with my heroic ideas, but it's the, it's the little crew. It's the, it's the four or five of us that are really going to um, take on some serious work. So you mentioned Lumio. That was my first crew, I think, where um, we started that with six people and we raised, I don't know, we raised a couple of million dollars in, in ethical financing and we've built a piece of technology that's been used by a few hundred thousand people. And it's like, I don't think it's this amazing change the world project, but I think it's made a useful contribution to the world. And it's definitely orders of magnitude more of an impact than I could have ever had on my own. You know, there's this real sweet spot where you can achieve a lot with with a small talented group with people that all have skill that they all have trust that they all know how to collaborate with each other and they've all got different superpowers you can really just get a huge amount of work done in that group and the reason i focus on the small bit is because once you get beyond eight nine ten people you're going to need a whole bunch of architecture to hold that group together you're going to have to start making a lot of stuff explicit and, and having like yeah, you get into the difficult stuff of governance, you know, like you need to have a lot of agreements about what's happening and conflict management systems and checks and balances and all these kind of things. Whereas if you're doing it at the small scale, um, you can move a lot on, you can develop a kind of shared context with five or six people using not much more than dialogue, you know, just having having a call once a week or something where you sync up with each other, that can be enough of an organizational structure. But once you go beyond that scale, then you need to put all this architecture and and that tends to tends towards inefficiency you know it tends towards drama it tends towards debate and so I'm really focused on how do we produce a world full of really excellent crews, really excellent small groups of people doing meaningful stuff supporting each other to play to their strengths and 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 move the world in the right direction and so for most people getting into this, that means you need a practice because because you're not going to get it right the first time. You know, the, people are, the first time that you bring a team together and you try and do your project, you're probably going to fall out.
0: Makes sense. I'll push back a little bit on the size range, or maybe there's two different things here. As you may know, I was an entrepreneur in my early career, started several companies, and then later helped many other companies start. So I've had exposure to maybe 17 startup companies, of which 13 or 14 ended up producing positive results for their investors and the model i always used is that it was 20 that was the magic number in this size but i will say and i think about it here it's somewhat different than your crew of 3 to 6 because 3 to 6 would correspond to the loose groups within the 20 and you know i still remember a couple of my startups where we'd have yes we had a tech team and we had a sales team and we had a marketing team say and a customer service team each had a few people in it but yeah there was a nominal head but the truth of the matter was we ran the company around the lunch table you know every day we got together for lunch and it could be up to 20 people on a big table and we somehow managed to run it to 15 or 20 around the table even though we were sort of past six or so which is a good number we were you know loosely grouped into nominal teams with nominal heads. So maybe there's something in between the crew and the and your next level up which is sort of 6 to 20. We're thinking about at least.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think there's a really important piece there where you say these nominal heads. I'm guessing that that most or all of these startups they did have some degree of centralized ownership and leadership. And that's a that's a really familiar model that we know and so I think in some contexts people are just more familiar with that way of working and so you, you can go further. Whereas if you're trying to do something where you have completely decentralized ownership or decentralized uh, leadership, it's much more experimental when people don't have such clear models of how to behave. And so that's why I focus on the smaller scale where people get to practice. If you have 20 people and you're trying to organize without a, a central point where there's one person who owns it or there's you know, the three co-founders in the middle, it's gonna, you're going to spend a lot of time in, in debates about what our structure should be.
0: Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We managed to do it even though we were game A. We had, you know, stock and investors, and, you know, there was concentrated ownership upwards towards the earliest senior players, but everybody had stock in the company. It's always been one of my rules. You know, even the receptionist had stock in the company from day one, right? And I think we acted as if in general, and this has always been one of my business rules, radical intellectual honesty, that anyone who could say something useful and intelligent had exactly the same standing as anybody
1: else. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about the context of, say you get into a difficult deadlock, there's a conflict, there's probably one or two people in that group of 20 that everyone is going to look to to solve that conflict. Yep, that is true. Like those, those concentrations of power, they're always there.
0: Yep. Even in ape culture, we know, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite guests who's been on the show a couple of times, Jessica Flack. She's written a lot about policing in ape cultures and to some degree, monkey cultures. And yeah, there's always somebody who, when there's a deadlock, Figures things out. But perhaps that's emergent and doesn't have to be the same person. If you go back and look at hunter gatherer governance, very, very good book called Hierarchy in the Forest by Chris Boehm. It actually should have been called Anti Hierarchy in the Forest because it talks about how hunter gatherer people kept formal hierarchies from forming. And they had a concept called role-based management. Uh, they, obviously, they didn't have management consultants to give them a nice fancy name like that, I don't think. But in reality, that's what they practiced, which is they sort of knew who to look to for what. So maybe it was UG for hunting questions, and it was MA for gathering questions, and it was ZOO For weaving questions, and if there was a deadlock amongst the community about one of those three domains, everybody, quote unquote, knew that these were the best thinkers on those three topics, and so the the role-based leader would typically step forward in that domain and break the deadlock.
1: Yeah, I I, I totally buy that model. That sometimes we call that a competency network. You know where, and and the joy of that network is that there will be a rough consensus about who is the best at weaving. But it's not a it's not a formal consensus. You can actually have an overlap. Everyone has their own terrain of who they trust on which topic, and there's a bit of there's a bit of wiggle room in that terrain and a little bit of messiness, which is actually really resilient and really productive. And as opposed to when you have the formal structure where you have departments and everything's very clearly, you know, this is the person that you report to, and this person is the smartest one on this topic. Like, if you can organize as a network, you're much more resilient and efficient. I think.
0: Exactly. So it turns out Lulu, who was the expert on weaving, is starting to lose it a little bit. Maybe she's drinking too heavy, but her younger cousin Lala is gradually arising as the most knowledgeable weaver. Then Lulu gradually loses her authority to Lily in a way that's not brittle, right, that you would see in a game A organization. I'll give you a real world example in my own companies. You know, I might have been the CEO or the COO or the Founder, CTO. I had all kinds of different roles in different companies. But what I would always make sure that I would announce loudly is. Don't expect me to ever make a decision about anything that has to do with aesthetics. I have no aesthetic sense at all. My aesthetic is construction crayon on grocery bags, so don't ever ask me my opinion about which logo is better or what color we should have for our letterhead. I am entirely incompetent. In fact, I have anti-competence. If I choose it, it's almost certainly wrong.
1: Something tells me that's not a um, false humility coming from you either, Jim.
0: Nope, it's not. I am just incompetent. You all see me draw. I draw like a, if I ask me to draw a person, it looks like about a rather untalented five-year-old. So I think that a pronouncement of that sort provided room for role-based competency to arise.
1: This, sort of, this does sort of illustrate why I'm interested in looking at the self as well, you know, because there's some people that wouldn't be willing to say that about themselves, that they, that, that they can clearly delineate, these are my competencies, and over here, I've got no talent. Like That takes a certain maturity to even be able to admit that. And it's an essential principle of being able to collaborate effectively with a group of people is that everyone knows what their strengths are and you have a sort of shared map of who's good at what.
0: Yep, that's a very, very good point. Think of it as kind of an inverse Dunning-Kruger, right? Dunning-Kruger syndrome, which a certain leading political figure in the United States is an exemplar of, is the class of people who think they know a shitload more than they actually do. Much better to probably overestimate your incompetences than to overestimate your competences. Anyway, let's move on in your hierarchy. Let's go from the crew up to your next level. So the next,
1: and, and like you, you know, you name this, this level of six to 20 people. I'm sure there are, there are more stages, but just the ones that I named for my own purposes, the next stage I call the congregation. And that's basically a Dunbar number, you know, more or less. And um, I'm, I think the jury's still out on what Dunbar's number actually is uh, because it's so culturally dependent, so context dependent. But in any case, there might be 100 people in some cases and it might be two or 300 in others. But it's the, it's the number of people that you can have who basically know each other, you know, where you can basically assume that there's no strangers and that if a stranger shows up, everyone will be able to spot them right away because it's like, huh, we don't know you. I mean, the reason I call it a congregation, partly it's because it's funny because it sounds churchy. And I've got this churchy background and I'm a, um, I'm excommunicated from a fundamentalist church. So it's kind of funny for me to, to use that word, but also it's because the main job of the congregation is to congregate. It's the verb. It's about the gathering. It's about the coming together. And so in Inspiral's case, the congregation is about 200 people and we get together once a year and not everyone get, can get there, but like a critical mass of people will come to a gathering once a year for about a week. And in that time, it's it functions like a dating pool for all the crews it's a space where you get to meet new collaborators you get to update each other on the projects that you've done you know you might be sitting around the campfire late at night and exchanging stories about near misses you experienced in your crew and um there's a lot of mingling there you know it's about all the crews kind of blending together for a while and developing this sense of there's something there's something bigger than just my little startup which is focused on you know like lumio this decision making tool it's that's that's nice on its own but it's much more compelling to me to be connected to this bigger thing where it's like oh there's 30 different ventures all doing different related projects that that gives me an enormous um sense of pride you know and belonging and and, it, and it's really encouraging to be in that in that network and again the congregation of say 150 people if we want to choose an average is a lot smaller than most of the groups that people are working in you know like so um if you think about burning man and all those related um participatory community slash festivals that are happening around the world that people get really excited about. They usually have thousands and thousands of people in them. And it feels good for a short time to do that. But, and, and people go to those things because they feel like they belong. They feel like they've found the others. But the fact is like a group of that scale, most of the people are going to be anonymous to each other. They might have a, an imagined community where they sense like, ah, you're one of those people and I'm one of those people. But if you're you're in a group that's larger than 150 people, you can't actually count on anyone to know you and you can't count on anyone to to actually care about you when you get sick, say, or like when you have some real needs, you can't really count on those people to come through for you. And so, again, it's like uh, it's a smaller scale than most people are used to thinking about organizing it.
0: I was going to expand your concept of the congregation a little bit, and this, you know, again comes from my own business career, where we not can think of the congregation not only as a dating service for crews, but also there are some problems and some opportunities that take a lot more than a crew to solve, right? There are some businesses you just can't build without a hundred, two hundred 300 people. And it was something we discovered at the Thompson Corporation, big $8 billion at the time, multinational, but I worked there in the 90s, now Thomson Reuters. And we tried hard, couldn't do it in all of our businesses, but in many of our businesses, we had identified a size of about 300 that is the most people we wanted to have at one facility. And so even if a business unit itself was bigger than that, we tried to you know, not have more than 300 of them at one street address. And those 300 people acted together as a coherent congregation. You know, they had their Christmas party together. They had, you know, they'd order pizzas. They'd have, you know, quarterly addresses from whoever the leader of that congregation was. In fact, I jokingly, my wife helped me with this, we jokingly named all the ranks in Thompson from Pope on down, right? So you had (laughs) cardinals and archbishops and bishops and monsignors and priests and deacons and all this sort of stuff. And so typically a group of 300 would have been about the equivalent of a bishop. And there would be, you know, four or five priests below that with groups around 100, between 50 and 100. So the congregation, and, you know, we discovered it to be 300. And I think that was in the context of a relatively highly networked world with lots of email, lots of voicemail. Video conferencing didn't really work very well in those days. But but anyway, it's, you know, the Dunbar number plus or minus. You know, in the Game B world, we talk about a group, called a Dunbar, which is you know somewhere between 100 and 300 with a mean maybe of 150, that might be responsible for a certain set of things. For instance, housing, making sure that nobody in a game B Dunbar is ever homeless under any circumstance, which means if you vote somebody into your Dunbar and they somehow lose their home, They're going to be sleeping on somebody's couch because that's a commitment we make at the level of the Dunbar. And it seems to me an appropriate commitment to make at that level. So anyway, that's just a Ruddian expansion of your concept, which I think is, you know, sort of bang on. And I think we've all, you know, learned a little bit from Robin Dunbar and his work, but we're all a little skeptical that, you know, we don't think 150 is a magic number, but something in that range is saying something important. So now beyond the congregation, what do we have?
1: Well, beyond that, I just call it the crowd because the point is once you get beyond that scale, you have an expectation of anonymity, and it doesn't matter if it's five hundred or if it's five million like you're just most people are not going to know most people in that context and and I've just decided not to uh, have too many opinions at that scale it's it's There's plenty of people that are really um motivated about this you know how we're we going to change the world or how we're we going to change this country or you know thinking in terms of millions of people at once and and I'm happy to leave them to it, and I'm much more interested in how do we develop relationships of excellence at a scale that's, yeah, Dunbar or lower? And that's my, my area to focus on.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. If we don't solve the lower problems, we won't solve the higher problems correctly. Though we do have a concept in game B called Proto B, which is, you know, two to N, Dunbars who collectively or by affiliation agree to a certain set of principles. And the proto B's can have different sets of principles. And the principle set should be small enough to allow considerable diversity amongst Dunbars, what we call coherent pluralism. You know, so proto B might have, here are nine principles, right? If you want to be a Dunbar in proto B Cactus, then you should include in your principles this set as a core. And there should be competing proto bees, and so that's one of the ways we think of getting to a somewhat higher number. Aggregate around coherent pluralism using multiple Dunbars, and let the proto bees differ in how they choose what their coherent core should be. Whether that works or not, I don't know. It's all theory at this point. A lot of it's written up in my paper, "A Journey to Game B," available on Medium. But I'm, you know, less confident about that level of organization than I am some of these lower levels we've been talking about.
1: Hmm. I'm writing a, a a related hypothesis but it's different and i it's I think useful to name it just to see how it plays out which is you've talked about principles and I'm trying to see how far we can get without naming principles without naming purpose without naming values and just stay explicitly focused on the on the practices like keep it really close to the verbs to the action to the doing like what are the methodologies we use what is the stuff that happens and see how far we can go without naming these abstractions, these nouns, these principles, these purposes, because that's, I mean, that's a reaction, potentially an overreaction from me to seeing, first of all, how much time groups put into articulating these nice abstractions. Uh, but secondly, how there's always a large gap between the stated principles that you you all agreed to and the actual behavior that you see. And so I'm doing this experiment of just like, let's just explicitly focus on the behavior and, and try and keep it as concrete as possible and, and leave the abstractions to manage themselves.
0: I'm totally open to that. By the way, I will fully confess that I am an old fart with lots of game A heritage and malware. And so my own use of the word principles should be taken as somewhat atavistic. And if we can get away without them, so much the better. But I'm not convinced I'd have to see it, but I'm certainly open to it.
1: I do like principles that, the way that Ray Dalio uses them, you know, which is like, what category of scenario are we in in this moment? Have we seen this type of scenario before? And what did we do last time? Like he's got a very coherent framework for thinking about decision making and thinking about how to respond to novelty. And I think that that's really, really useful. But the, the use of the principles as, as in like we love transparency and honesty and inclusion. It's like, give me a break.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I found that they've worked for me over the years. Again, I said the number one principle in all my companies, intellectual honesty, right? And we actually point to it. You know, you never shoot the messenger, right? You never steal credit. Hmm. You know, you always bring forward that which is important to the company, even if it's embarrassing to you or your work team. I have found that one principle in particular to be extraordinarily useful. The other one was our Thompson principle, which we would articulate as you should push responsibility down as far as you feel comfortable Mm. and then one level lower. (laughs) And while I will say that there was, of course, lots of hypocrisy about that because humans love to aggregate power, but we would call that one out if we saw people who were not pushing authority down. And I still recall uh, at a company meeting, which we'd have every year with the top, I don't know how many it was, two or three hundred executives. And in this highly decentralized company, those two or three hundred executives had a lot of authority and i remember a, a talk i gave when we were you know trying to mobilize this historically print and cd rom based publisher to move into the internet i said one huge competitive advantage we have in this transition is we have in our company 500 people allowed to waste $50,000 right and i looked at my cfo while i was saying this he was up there on the stage with me and he winced and he go but he was he was a great ceo but he agreed and i said you know our number one competitor head to head competitor mcgraw Hill, there's only three people allowed to waste $50,000, right? And having 500 people who have the delegated right to just make an arbitrary, crazy decision on $50,000 will give us a huge advantage in out-evolving McGraw-Hill. And sure enough, we did. So principles
1: can be useful. The sense that my kind of company,
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it was at those days. Unfortunately, it got a new management team came over, blah blah. Yeah, you know, they fucked it up. Oh well, now it's purely financial driven, money on money return, such as life. But so those kinds of principles, they should be small number, and they have to be really taken seriously, right? And yes, hypocrisy is the price that virtue pays to vice, or the other way around. I don't fuck what it is, but you know, people won't be a hundred percent compliant, but. If they're taken seriously, I think they could work. But on the other hand, I, I would love to see how your approach works. I am, I, you know, fully confessed to being highly overformed by my game a experiences, and I'm um, listening for the younger generation to prove me wrong, motherfucker, right?
1: <laughs> and and I have to fully confess that I'm an extremist. You know, I always swing too far off the deep end. So the the right the right way is probably somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, and and, and we'll figure it out over time. So yeah, thanks a lot for that. Let's hop back now a level. That review of your Microsolidarity number two and the various levels. The other work, actually, when I read it, it, was the reason I reached out to you to come on the show, was a very interesting higher level Medium article called How to Weave Social Fabric. And it calls out and links to the Microsolidarity series, but it sort of operates at a higher and maybe simpler level for people to get started with where you talk about initiators, gatherings, and crews. Maybe you want to do a quick run-through on how to weave social fabric?
1: Hmm. This, is, um, this is funny because I wrote that in January with a plan for how we were initiating a, cu- a couple of different congregations. So one was about taking the Inspiral Congregation, which I said is centered in, in Wellington in New Zealand, and seeing if we can establish a sort of a cell division there, you know, establish a new core in somewhere in Europe. So there's that uh, kind of budding new congregation. And then there's a couple of others that I'm involved with um, in different ways. One of them is, is a group for community builder type, facilitator type people. And then there's another one, which is a, a network basically of, of political leaders and activists and so on. So there's a bunch of different congregations that I'm helping to establish. And we wrote this in January. And the plan was, um, well, the first thing you do is you have a really great gathering. You have a really awesome meeting where you get everyone face-to-face for the three or four days and you kind of, you know, you make them fall in love with each other and then you fill them with a vision and they go off and do a lot of stuff. Um, but then, of course, the uh, pandemic cut, cuts in and our plans of having everyone face-to-face are um, up in the air, you know, like we don't know about travel, we don't know about gatherings. So we are now in the re um, re-hypothesizing, re-experimenting phase with, can we, can we weave social fabric without having face-to-face time? So this is really uncertain. It's a puzzle. We're doing a bunch of experimentation and, and I'll keep reporting what I learned along the way. But still, I think a lot of the principles that I named in that blog post will still translate fairly well into a virtual context. So the first one, I, I named the initiators. So to think about who is who is going to be in that role of calling people together? You know, who's going to say, I'm going to, you know, if it's a face-to-face gathering, I'm going to book the venue and invite these people to come. Or if it's online, similar, who's going to send out the calendar and invite this, this is happening. And I've found it really useful to think of that within the frame of hospitality, because hospitality has a, a lot of people are familiar with hospitality and the expectations and the roles that happen within hospitality, essentially being host and guest, you know, that the host has some special responsibilities. They have uh, some kind of empowered role there, you know, like we'd say, "My house, my rules." But there's also a sense that the host's job is to tend to the needs of the guest and to really give the guest a great experience. So I find that a really useful frame for thinking about how to how to address leadership in this community building context, which is a quite a vexed question. So I think it's really essential that you have this this, yeah, host or co-hosts in the middle, and that the first people that they call to them, the ones that are closest to the core, that you really think about what kind of qualities you want to see in your community and invite people that already exhibit some of those qualities, you know, people that you already think have wisdom or courage or that are very caring or very generous or very competent or whatever the the qualities that you're looking for, like calling those people first. And, and yeah, getting that... Um, Getting that smaller first stage core to some degree of harmony, some degree of coherence, you know, like bring them bring them together first. Maybe you've got 10 people or 20 people first uh, before leaping ahead to going, let's get 100 people in the room or 300 people in the room. Let's like, start with just um, establishing some sense of a shared baseline. Like this is us. This is what we do. This is how we feel. This is our direction that we're heading in. So then, yeah, then then the blog post, I go on to talk about how we run gatherings at Inspiral and how I think that the practice of our gathering is absolutely essential to what we're doing. And this is the bit that now is super experimental and we don't know. One way to think about it is the right kind of gathering will have this balance between freedom and form. So I think people at least the kind of people that I'm connecting with, they don't want to have a huge amount of uh, structure and control. They don't want to feel like they're going to go to a gathering and every hour is planned out and there's an agenda from start to finish. There should be a lot of freedom for spontaneity and people to do whatever they want and uh, lots of different things to happen in parallel and so on. Um, And the the, the other principle is to to think about the different relational spaces that you're creating. So there's one space, which is the whole of us, like the whole group. When And if it's a small enough group, you can do that sitting in a circle, you know, like um, sometimes at Inspiral, we'll have a really deep kind of dialogue circle or a story sharing circle where everyone's sitting in, a, in, a, in the room together, looking at each other, seeing the whole of us. And one at a time people will share a story and everyone else is just going to listen. So you, you cultivate the sense of wholeness. And then, spend some time in the smaller groups. So breaking off into crews. So any gatherings that we run, we'd always have, usually we call them home groups for some reason, but you could call it a pod or whatever you want to call it. But just four or five people that are um, having some kind of repeated connection with each other throughout the course of that event. And then we have the the pairing. So finding opportunities to put people face-to-face. You know, sometimes we do things like, Uh, walk and talk. So you pair up and you just, you go for a walk for an hour and it's just the two of you going for a walk and talking and that that might it might be as simple as that. Or you can do some more sort of intentional communication practices about uh, active listening and speaking from a place of authenticity and so on. And and also I think it's helpful to make sure that there's plenty of time for people to spend time on their own, you know, which is like I said, the smallest group, the self.
0: The self and the dyad, because when I go to conferences, which I don't do anymore, except as a speaker, but I used to go to conferences fairly often. And the best parts for me were the one-on-ones, right? Where you'd pick somebody out of the crowd or they'd pick you out of the crowd and you'd go off to a corner during the break and have some intensely deep conversation, right? It's a truism that it, you know, poorly organized conferences, essentially all the value is in the side conversations. And for, at least for me, those are often dyadic. So I would, I would put that in there as well. If one, were thinking about such things. Let's move on to something closer to this podcast, actually, something you and I have been chittering about on Twitter a little bit, and I'm starting to do some work on. And I think you and I and Jared are going to have a conversation about it offline. But we've both been seeing Peter Lindbergh's STOA, which seems a nice example of building community around podcasts. And, you know, as I said, we put together a little project plan of our own that needs to be tuned and expanded. What are some of your thoughts on how you know some of your principles can be applied to turning podcasts into essentially, you know, expanded events that build community around them?
1: Mm. This is a really fun question because it's, it's so live. It's so emergent right now. And, and four or five different com- conversations simultaneously, all with people that are running podcasts, asking how do they make them less about broadcast and more about peer-to-peer community building. So it's fun. I, I don't have a strong sense yet of what's the right plan, but there's a lot of experiments happening in parallel. One, one piece of the puzzle I think is that there's an anti-pattern of podcasts, especially in the game B space and related sort of sense-making, intellectual, philosophical spaces, which is I'm concerned about an overdoing the intellect and an underdoing the action you know, that there's, there's all of the people that you interview on your show, they're brilliant people, you know, and it's like, every time I can get a new episode of, of, of my favorite podcast and listen to this person and be like, wow, they're so smart, you know, and it's, it's, it's really stimulating to listen to these smart people that can communicate really clearly. And the concern that I have is that people get into a habit of just consuming knowledge, just uh, listening to more and more different people and, and, and assembling this, this sort of like pristine map of how they think reality works. And maybe they start a little bit to think about how they might um, initiate some kind of community or some project or something that they're interested in. But still they do this thing of like way over engineering it and overthinking it and under practicing, under experimenting. And so my energy is to try and interfere with that tendency and, and push people more towards their agency, more towards their initiative, their entrepreneurship, their um, get up and do it kind of energy. So I'm seeing Peter Lindbergh's platform, The Stower, as a really effective example of someone who had a podcast and now is doing everything interactive all the time. And I think that's that's really brilliant. And he's going to be prototyping a lot of stuff. Yesterday, I had a conversation with a a podcast that has some, a really serious, large audience. They have many thousands of people that are very actively engaged already in, in some of their community building efforts. And they are, they came to me with the question of, you know, we have these 5,000 people who are super engaged and now they're asking about mutual aid funds. Like, uh, especially in the US, you've got people who are suddenly out of work or they've got these unexpected expenses with the pandemic and we want to support each other by sharing money around. How do we do that? And my instinctive answer is the same that I, I give to all these people is to, you know, like I keep saying, focus on the small scale and also to focus on experimentation and learning. So in their case, it's like, my recommendation is instead of trying to address your 5,000 people, is there a way that you can divide off hundred or 300 or something like that? And instead of designing the perfect system for a mutual aid fund where people can exchange money between each other tax-free or however it's going to work, don't aim for perfection, just aim for something that's going to teach you something, you know, that sort of entrepreneurial attitude of just release something and then make it better next week. And so what I've recommended for them is that they run a weekly or a two-weekly cycle where, okay, we're going to do a funding round. And then at the end of that round, we're going to stop and we're going to have some kind of communal reflection process where we, we go, what was good about that? What was not so good? What are we going to do differently next time? And use that you know, agile, uh, iterative learning process to just develop the structure that's right for the context that you're in. Because this is the thing, like I have some degree of expertise in self-organizing groups, but I don't have any expertise in your context. I don't know who are the people and what kind of relationships and what kind of culture they've got. And so the, the right organizational structure is not going to come from my ideas, right? It's going to emerge from the local context. And so really instituting that practice of being very rigorous around the learning and the experimentation. like These are the experiments we're running for this month. And then this is the point where we stop and reflect and see what's going to go better. And yeah, like I say, it's probably looking for opportunities to focus on the small scale. So in Peter's case, so they've got one thing now that's just started, they call the the metagame mastermind. And that's about, um, it's like a little crew. It's, it's like find find three people that you're going to check in with every week on your personal development goals. I think that's just like an excellent initiative where they will have a, a shared sort of structure, a shared template. Like this is this is how we do our mastermind process and anyone can initiate. So if you're listening to this and you like it, then just call out to two or three of your friends and, and here's, the, you know, here's the run sheet if you want to try it out. So I like the idea of having lots of people doing that very small gesture of hospitality, that one of saying, hey, I want to do this little group thing. Do you want to do it with me? And then coalescing those small groups together into, into progressively larger groups. And I don't know how that applies in your context with your, with your um, incipient community.
0: That's a, it's a, it's a, it's certainly a question that will cause me to think, right? I can't give you a good answer off the top of my head, but I do believe that if I approach it from that perspective, that may help illuminate some good things to do. I also like your towards action. In fact, one of the things I call out as a, on the journey to Game B is that we need to develop a bias towards action, particularly in the social change movement. We do seem to attract too many people who just love to fucking talk right? And people who do not love to act. And while talking is good and moves certain kinds of endeavors forward, at the end of the day, you got to pull the trigger, motherfucker, right? You got to go out and do something. And so I've strongly tried to encourage a bias towards action. One of the most recent things we've done in the Game B space is you know, the home Game B Facebook group Had gotten overstuffed with too much philosophical bullshit and such. And so we've now spun off, I don't know, a dozen or more independent subgroups, which have their own mod team, which set their own rules and are typically focused on a much more narrow topic like parenting or building sovereignty or education community building, et cetera. And even they're still somewhat talk shoppy, but some of them at least are moving towards action. And I, you know, I do think that you know, those of us who are action oriented, and I, I see you as a person who's very action oriented, you know, need to make sure that we kind of level up these radical change organizations away from being talk shops or navel gazing and get on with building the goddamn thing, right?
1: I, I have to add the other side of that polarity though, because I'm also... Um, connected to a lot of activists, which I will sometimes call actionists, you know, that are, that are just obsessed with doing action and actually don't have the process of learning engaged. <laughs> There's not a process of reflection. And so there has to be a balance between those things. And that's why I'm always emphasizing this. Institute some kind of rhythm of of retrospective, of, of, of reflection, of learning, like make those learning loops really explicit and say every week or every month we have this moment where we stop and we reflect on the action that we've done Um, So, that you'd certainly most of your energy is going into acting because that's the way that you learn the most. But you also have to stop for a second, stop doing for a second to look around and go, what did we learn from that? And then move again.
0: Yeah, I agree. For sure. Let's move on to another topic. And this is one of your lesser known essays on Medium called I Will If You Will, which is this very interesting idea of making a conditional commitment. So, if enough of us agree to do X, you know, like a debt strike or, or something like that, then it will trigger our mutual commitment to go forward. But if we don't get a critical mass, it won't. What more can you say about that? I think you actually called out some tools and things of that sort that might be useful for people who want to self-organize around conditional commitment.
1: This is funny because um, I'm an absolute amateur in this field. You know, I've done some stuff with you know, technology for social movements. And so I was invited by some folks from Extinction Rebellion who were planning some various conditional commitment initiatives. They said, you know, would you would you have some opinions on us, uh, on what we're doing? And I spent a day doing some research and pulling together some links and seeing what's out there and and talking to my contacts and so on. And did the thing that I do, which is push that all into a blog post so that I don't have to keep it in my memory, and, and just left it out there to say like, this is, this is the state of the art, as far as I can tell from one day of research and, and some good conversations with people in the field. And it's, it's, it's so far outside of my, my day-to-day expertise, I think, or well, not so far, but it's not, it's not um, core to, to what I know about, but the, the, the essential principle to me, it feels pretty sound. It's got some, it's, there's been some good examples of people pulling it off well. So that's like, yeah, a, a rent strike is a really good example. And those are currently happening, especially in the U.S., um, all over the place where people are at least organizing in their building or in a neighborhood complex where there's one, um, one property owner. And if you can go around the neighborhood, whether that's in person or online, and get them to, to pledge, yeah, I need to have these conditions change or else we're not going pay to the, pay the rent, it's very easy for, for someone to say, I will if you will. That really lowers the threshold of their, of their commitment and once you've got that critical mass, then you can then you can initiate. So there are some there are some tools. The reason I was doing that research because there, there were plans for a really significant debt strike in the UK. And then they backed away from that. I think because I'm not sure exactly. it's a bit foggy, but I think it's because the legal implications of doing this kind of stuff start to get really serious, you know when you're talking about people default intentionally taking on debt just so they can default on it just so they can try and throw a spanner in the works of finance. It's um, <laughs> it's it's some really risky territory. So I think they backed out of that. But I know that some of the people that have been involved with Extinction Rebellion have have run smaller scale conditional commitment com- campaigns with some success. So I definitely, yeah, I think it's a, a field that's ripe for more experimentation.
0: Great. I will reveal here now for the first time that there's a document being prepared by one of the leading figures in the Game B space, not me, that will be proposing a conditional commitment for a radical reform or jubilee. You pick which one. And we'll have more to say about that soon. So this is, I think, very timely. And I would point people to Rich's paper, at least as a primer. I'm glad you qualified how far along you were in that, but I found it useful. We'll see where this idea goes. I think it has huge potential. It corresponds sort of using technology and networks to the old idea of the anarchists, the general strike, if you remember that from your anarchist literature
1: i mean it's a it, it just has this kind of a beautiful idea about it, right like that you just you can coordinate all these people to anticipate some kind of shared action, and they don 't have to expose themselves until there's a critical mass where they know they can win i think i think it's it's really devious, and I really love it and i I'm excited to hear that game b people uh, uh have got something in the works
0: yeah it'll be interesting you've been playing working, living in this world of self-organizing, work, life, and culture for a number of years. I don't know quite how long, but how do you see it progressing? And what do you think we need to speed up the transition so that it's just not a few of us maniacs out on the fringe, but it's large numbers of people?
1: That's a great question. It does feel like there's momentum underway. I have a sense that there's a growing portion of people in the world that are really dissatisfied with the status quo. And we'll see what happens with this pandemic, with everyone taking a break from their business as usual. If that, I have a sense that that, that might shake a few more monkeys out of the tree, that people are, have a moment to stop and reflect on their life and look at their, you know, what are they spending their time on and how does that relate to their values? And hmm, maybe it's not so satisfying. The main obstacle that I see, and this is, this is really core to my work, I think, is that doing the self-organizing group thing for, for starters, it's kind of new. Maybe it's ancient and we've, we've lost touch. most of us have lost, lost touch with the old ways of doing it. But for most of us modern people, it's new and experimental, and my view is that there is no blueprint that you can copy and expect it to work well. And I hold the contention that we don't have to start from a blank slate, a blank slate either. I really believe that there are design patterns that work transcontextually that you can take from one place and implement in another place and and you can't take an, an entire organization with, with all of the rules and regulations, but I think you can take some of the practices and some of the, the modules. And that's why, uh, you know, the, the book that I wrote and now which we've developed into an online course, we call it Patterns for Decentralized Organizing, is to try and name some of these patterns. So so some of the obvious ones are like decision-making. If you're going to work in a group, you're going to have to have some way of taking decisions. And we have compiled, look, these are some that we, some decision-making methods that we've we've seen work really well and these are our way of doing it we name four different methods and say like they're, they're good for four different contexts and, and a mature group is probably going to be able to switch between those different methods in different contexts but you need to have that shared language like if you're in a group where everything is done by consensus or everything is done by just um, you know what they call a duocracy like a, a free-for-all where people do what they want if, if that's the only decision method you've got it's it's not a very resilient system. But if you have multiple decision methods, you're likely to be able to deploy the right tool for the job. then we talk about uh, conflict is another really classic one, like new groups start and they're having a great time and it feels like they're changing the world and they all love each other. And at some point the honeymoon runs out and then you have some conflicts and very, very common that a group will falter or terminate because of a deep conflict between some of the core people. And this is the kind of thing that you can anticipate And if you anticipate it while you're still in your honeymoon and name some agreements about what are we going to do when things get tough, who are we going to call on, what are our, like you would have, guiding principles. Um, if If you can name some of those things before it gets tough, then when you hit the difficult time, you've got something to lean back on. But if you hit the conflict and you don't have any pre existing structure for dealing with conflict, it's a very difficult time to invent one, right? So there's lots of these kind of patterns that we've been articulating in our work, and the big frustration that I have is that people seem to intuitively understand if they want to do something self-organizing, that they, they can't really copy a blueprint. And so what happens is everyone is out there in their own groups, failing for the same reasons. They're learning everything the hard way. And a lot of these uh, kind of obstacles and problems that we articulate, they're sufficient to terminate a group. You know, like I think there's... there's uh, maybe eight to ten of these these core challenges of working with humans. And if you hit any one of those without the appropriate structure in place or the appropriate culture or the without having prepared for it, it can be enough to terminate your group. And so many of these new initiatives get underway and they they go really well for six months and then they just disintegrate. And then to me, it's essential that we're learning from each other. And so I'm doing my little piece of that with my partner, with our little company, The Hum, trying to produce training material. you know. But there's more to it than that. It's not just about us having the, the one true curriculum I think it's more about learning how do we share experience of what are we doing in our groups and what's going well, what can we learn from each other, what's difficult, how do we support each other. This is one of the, the the critical success factors of Inspiral is that we have all of these small groups and everyone cares about everyone. So like if your group is in trouble, I'm going to come over and help you out. And having that community of peers where we're we're invested in each other, but we're not completely tightly bound together you know there's a little bit of distance there creates an excellent environment for learning and, and and support so i think that um yeah more peer-to-peer exchange between these collaborative groups would go a long way that's my best guess for now
0: yeah and i would let me throw out something else to you to think about because i absolutely agree with you and that's actually my next topic but my sense if assuming that this COVID-19 pandemic thing does not actually crash the system. And I don't believe it will, but I think it'll be a big shock. So I don't think this is the revolutionary moment yet. But what I do think is happening, based on talking to a lot of people over the last six weeks, is that the number of people who have ears to hear about something different has been very substantially increased, perhaps by a factor of 10 or maybe even more you described, dissatisfied with the status quo, or maybe just took a break from the rat race and realized, what the hell have I been doing for the last 15 years? What ridiculous shit going to these stupid meetings, dealing with morons who don't know how to operate a meeting, making no or bad decisions that don't really matter. Why do I live this way? This is absurd. There's got to be a better way. So the action item I'm taking from this in our Game B world is to perhaps artificially accelerate the creation of artifacts to get them in circulation outside of the inner community for these ears to hear. And, you know, perhaps in your space, a natural action, if I'm correct, my hypothesis, I might be wrong. I often am, right? As I say, my ideas are strongly stated, but weakly held. The results will tell us. Maybe take your patterns for decentralized organization and get it done, goddammit, and publish it there'll be a probably a 10 times bigger audience for this in the next nine to 12 months than there was in the last nine to 12 months. Does that make sense?
1: It totally makes sense. I know I have to finish the book. I redirected my energy to doing an online course because that that felt more alive, you know, to have have a space where people can meet each other and, and learn together in groups and whether they, they can do it um, together in groups or they can do it on their own. But I, I do I know I have to return to the book and finish it. That's uh <laughs> I have a tendency of moving on to the next thing, you know, I like the shiny, shiny. I have to say though, this emergence of new potentially at least the potential emergence of new groups does double click on why I'm focused on practices. Because you can you can enable a lot of different groups to use the same practices, even if they have a different way of describing their values or their purposes or their principles. And and that's a real shared resource, I think, that we can we can curate together, you know. So whether it's nonviolent communication or authentic relating or circling or stuff that I'm putting through micro solidarity. Like, there's a lot of different behaviors, frameworks, structures that we can use that, that will replicate very well into different contexts.
0: That's actually a very good point. I had not really focused on that, that practices ought to be more contagious, to use an appropriate word of the moment, than principles, right? Even if we have opposite principles, we can use the same practices. All right, let's go on to our last topic here. We're getting uh, near our time, which is this has been something that was in the Game B playbook from the very beginning, but we never had time for it. We're trying to build our own little movement, but I am now getting outreach from other people and I'm reaching out to them. And this is what we called the big change movement. To your point, there are lots of groups now that are interested in serious social change. And they're not the same, right? You know, the the regenerative ecological people, I'm quite close to. Is that the same as Game B? No. But is there overlap? For sure. I've gotten to know recently the Hanzi branch, at least, of the metamodernists. Not the same. Some overlap, some serious goals, some differences on method, et cetera. And there's lots and lots more. Love to know your ideas about tools, protocols, and your word practices on what do you think should be in place for this big change movement because we know that we don't want to corral people into some common, you know, set of doctrines, but we want them to be able to share things that they've learned, insights, etc without anybody dominating the other, you know. So it's a truly collegial sense that all together are more than each apart, yet there's no dominance or attempting to divert anybody from their own trajectory, you know, what thoughts do you have for how one might go about crafting a big change movement at this point in time?
1: I I think with a question like that, I can only answer from my intuition, you know, It's, it's, it's kind of too big a puzzle to solve rationally. My instinctive position is that we need to drill on the fundamentals. That means, like, all this focus I'm putting on small groups, it's like, we need to have, I think, we need to have millions of people in the world that are ready to mobilize a group of people to work on their little patch and, and that feel competent to do that and feel encouraged and supported to do that well and that they're going to learn from each other. Because what I see at the moment is, like you see it, you know, way more talk than action and, and this feeling that there's a, huge, there's a huge threshold before someone gets activated. And I want to lower that threshold and make it more of a ramp and that, that people... It's like this move from from being a podcast audience to being a podcast community of of peer to peer action and mutual aid. You know, like that that's the gesture that I'm on, and and that means doing the basics. Learn, like you say, learn how to host a meeting. You know, learn how to how to uh, organize people and and uh, make decisions together and get some actions going. And and it can be the smallest thing. Like I think the first phase isn't about how do we turn the economy upside down. I think the first phase is like. How do we make sure the elder people in our neighbourhood are not going hungry, or doing the shopping for them, or you know, like doing doing small gestures? The, The purpose doesn't have to be transformative. I think the practice can be transformative of just discovering our agency and and our ability to work and function as a collective. I think if more of us were more competent on that, then I wouldn't be so frightened about the future as I am now, because this is what's motivating my work. Is there are so many utopians so many activists so many people who are willing to take a break from the status quo and if you look at them a lot of them are not very inspiring what they actually achieve you know a lot of them fall to pieces a lot of the i mean you just look at what happened with the with the communes from the 60s most of them disintegrated into really horrible places you know and we've got to take that seriously that the the intention to start at fresh and do something good and do something new is not enough we actually need to have the competencies to do it well And so my sense is we should be practicing today and and developing those muscles and getting more and more competent to look after ourselves and our neighbors without institutional support. That's the way that makes sense to me. And, And I guess the other part of what I'm doing is working out loud. So really making a practice of documenting everything I'm learning as much as I can, recording conversations in public and leaving those lying around so that other people who are on a similar quest can learn from me as I'm learning from them. I think open sourcing what we're doing, I, th- I think Game B has been reasonably good at that. There's a lot of surface area now online about what's happening in the Game B space. I think that's really good. But the, the stage beyond just open source is thinking in terms of modularity and identifying what are the component parts, you call them piece parts, that we can ship and say, this is ready, this is good. You can use it wherever you are. You know. So I mentioned this podcast uh, manager that I was talking to yesterday who has this 5,000 people who want to share money I was really happy to say to them, look, there is a piece part for that. It's called opencollective.com and it's a really excellent, it's like a charitable foundation as a service. It's a really excellent way of people pooling money together and handling all of the, the taxes and the administration and stuff in a, in a transparent way. It's, a, it's just like that piece is done now. We don't need to replicate it. Um, so I think that takes a particular approach to, to strategy and to movement design to think in terms of modules and make sure that we're checking them off one, one by one and not duplicating too much work.
0: All I can say to that is amen, brother. I agree with 100% of what you just said there. And I think that shows you why Rich is one of the two or three most interesting people I follow on the nets. And I'd encourage you to do the same. So I'd like to thank you, Rich, for an extraordinarily interesting 90 minutes here or thereabouts. And I think our audience will find this very, very useful.
1: I just wanted to tack on the end that we've just, just today we've decided we're gonna launch a thing called the Micro Solidarity Practice Week and that's going to be it's I mean it's it's experimental because it's brand new but it's happening um from May 11th we're going to bring a bunch of people together online and and practice some of this relational stuff that I've been talking about so you can go to the hum.org to find about that and and I also wanted to say thank you Jim and not just thank you for interviewing me but the work that you're doing I think is really it's really essential and the way that you're showing up and you could be in the phase of your life where you're retiring and quietly shuffling off to one corner, but instead you're raising your voice and, and giving a platform for others. And I think it's really, really, really excellent contribution. So I'm, I'm really grateful to be part of it.
0: Well, well, thanks. I think we're all in this together and we're all doing what we can. Amen. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.